Welcome to Lasso Lessons. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Kathy Buckman. Today we're discussing season two, episode six of Ted Lasso, The Signal. Before we jump in, I want to note that this episode's storylines feature feints, misdirections, puzzles, even a hidden storyline or two that you may not see coming. We open to the Arctic Monkeys dancing shoes, and this is not a 90s band. This song is from 2006. Jamie passes to Danny Rojas for a goal. And Kathy, did you notice who the sponsor is on the shirts? It's Banter. Yeah, it's Banter, which is the dating site that Keeley is promoting and that Rebecca is using. The announcers remind us that the team has come far in this season, both the football season, I think, as well as this season of Ted Lasso. Now, success is rarely a great way to kick off a storyline. Uh, where are we going to go from here? Well, they do have to face Tottenham Hotspur, which will be a tough match, we are told. But we'll get back to this as the episode progresses. Meanwhile, we find Rebecca at home in bed while a character we will learn she calls Hunky Luca roams her kitchen naked. At the same time, she is texting with her secret admirer on banter. And again, this is the storyline we've seen her torn between really pursuing love and just engaging in this sort of meaningless relationship. It's interesting that she and her secret admirer and banter are discussing guardian angels, as we've seen a number of religious references this season. Remember Ted's multiple times crossing himself and discussing even Catholic doctrine. And just when we think this is going to be the storyline about her being torn between these two poles, that we're going to advance this storyline, Rebecca's mom suddenly drops into the picture, quite literally discovering the naked Luca in Rebecca's kitchen. She has left Rebecca's father. Kathy, did you recognize this actress who plays Rebecca's mom? I didn't at the time, but since then, it's occurred to me who she is. She is Harriet Walter, a distinguished British stage actor. And she is, quite amazingly, Lady Carolyn on Succession. I did not recognize her. They're completely different characters. They're both pretty intense in some ways, but they're intense in completely different ways. On a side note, she's also a star in an episode of this season of Documentary Now. And you can hear my conversation with the creative team of that show, including Seth Myers, on one of my other podcasts. I'll leave a link in the show notes. She says of Rebecca's father, he doesn't listen to me. He doesn't respect me. And Esther Perel says it takes two people to create a pattern and only one to change it. I am that change. And I think this is a revelation of another thinker behind the series. We've already talked about Brene Brown's influence. It's been there under the surface, but only mentioned explicitly recently. And I think Esther Perel's been behind a lot of the series ways of thinking about relationships. It is interesting to see it called out here by Rebecca's mom. She may say she's the change, but this isn't the first time that she has left Rebecca's father. She's done it repeatedly and has gone back to him, usually when he's purchased her an expensive but sustainable present. Um, so is she the change or is she, in fact, the same? I think is a good question. Yeah, I totally agree. I feel like by having a character name check some of the things that we feel like are some of the references for some of the exploration that's going on in the show in interpersonal dynamics is really interesting. And I think in this case, it's not characterizing her as being really wise about relationships. I think it's characterizing her as somebody who reads this stuff to fuel her own preconceptions. 
I was particularly happy that the screenwriters here have inserted a fake Brene Brown book title into this episode. Rebecca's mom mentions that she's going to hear Brene Brown talk. And the fake book title that Rebecca's mom references is Enter the Arena, But Bring a Knife. And this is a reference to that she draws upon the Theodore Roosevelt quote about the man in the arena, right? Exactly. That you need to be in the arena. Even if you're going to get kicked, even if you're going to get criticized, you need to be there because it's the vulnerability that matters. And bringing a knife to the arena is really not in line with what Brene Brown is really getting at. Now, this storyline will play off nicely against another one we are introduced to after the credits. Coach Beard and his on-again, off-again girlfriend Jane are on-again. Higgins really doesn't think that this is a good idea, and the show hints the way in which their relationship is at least complicated, and is constantly told by people throughout the episode, including the Diamond Dogs and Rebecca, that he should keep his concerns to himself. Despite this, by episode's end, he does express his concern to Beard in a supportive way, and this is actually encouragement for Rebecca, who decides to speak with her mom. Hold that thought. Okay, but let's go back. Just after the credits, we see Ted making his way into work in his inclusive leadership style way, greeting everyone, both inside and outside, seemingly very, very happy. Once again, as she did in the previous episode, Dr. Sharon suggests that Ted make an appointment to see her. And what's interesting here is that this is our fourth or maybe fifth or sixth, as we'll see, storyline, and we just don't know it yet. How can it be? Ted's doing great. How can that be a story? Well, you may suspect there is a story here if you have been following along. I do think that Ted, as he did in the previous episode, seems especially energetic during the scenes. I hate to cast the diagnosis, but bordering on the manic. And I think this is something that Dr. Sharon is picking up on. This is the second time, so at least the second time she's offered that he make an appointment with her. Yeah, it's interesting how Dr. Sharon in this way is that sort of emotional barometer here, picking up on something coming from Ted, because that's usually what Keely does in these episodes. Yeah, Keely will once again, she'll spot later on without being told that Higgins is concerned about Beard and Jane. So she still plays that role, but it seems like it's complimenting. Maybe Dr. Sharon has her pulse on the deeper emotional currents. I guess it's her job. As we noted, the team is doing well under Roy's care, but as we might suspect, while he has seemingly mended fences with Ted, he still isn't really a fan of Jamie. He repeatedly refuses to coach Jamie, despite Jamie's desire for him to do so and Jamie's overt asking him to do so. Finally, he does offer some advice and importantly, I think a critique of Ted's coaching style. He tells Ted that in making Jamie a full-time team player, he has made Jamie average. Jamie has that ability to be tactically selfish and to get into the other team's head, much as he's gotten into Roy's head over the years. Roy tells Jamie that he has to turn on this prickishness, as he calls it, at times on the pitch, and that Roy will give the cue when it is that time. That's the title of this episode, The Signal. And that's at least one of the signals that I play it here. During the big game with Tottenham, that time does in fact arise. At a key moment, as agreed upon previously, the entire coaching staff gives Jamie the middle finger. Uh, Ted can't quite fully commit. He gives the thumbs up with his other hand. Jamie responds by taunting an opposing player into fouling him and then scoring on the subsequent free kick, bringing Richmond up by one. Near the end of the second half, Richmond's still up. 
we see Jamie continuing his ways, and the announcer says that Richmond can score an upset if they can keep their nerve. And as that's being said, we see distress in Ted's eyes. We see his hands start twitching, signs that have previously been made manifest just before he suffers a breakdown, as you'll remember from the previous season. And I think it's very important. I haven't seen this discussed. I took a look on the web. It may be something out there, but under the rising crowd noise, I think we hear two very important kind of auditory callbacks. First, we hear James Tart, and that's Jamie's father, uh, who's this kind of abusive character, say, you're better than that, Jamie. And this is from the, I believe, the last episode of the first season where Jamie had passed the ball to a teammate to score rather than take the shot himself. After the game, we see Jamie's father scold him this way. You're better than that, Jamie. Importantly, it seems now, and I didn't really understand the importance of it at the time, we also see that Ted had witnessed that scene. We see the scene and we see that Ted had been watching it. And I assume that's for the payoff here. Now, this is interesting in that what James was encouraging was the sort of selfish play that Roy has now sort of institutionalized and channeled. And it's very much not in Ted's style. So I think that's very important. And we also hear a young boy say, Jamie Tart. And I believe this is Ted's son. I think this is when Ted's son first visited the pitch and saw Jamie. And so what we have here are two important instances of fathers and sons all bound up in Jamie while being Jamie. And as we've noted, fathers and sons are a widespread and deep theme throughout, especially this season. We have been speculating that there may be more to Ted's relationship with his own father than we have seen yet. And just a reminder that neither Kathy nor I have seen to the end of the second season, so we don't fully know what awaits us. But I think this is really fascinating that these are the kind of the signals, the triggers that set Ted off into a panic attack. So you're saying that those two audio cues that we get almost like an audio montage over this moment are going on in Ted's head. Yes, they have to be going on in Ted's head. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. And they seem to be very tied up with fathers and sons, with Jamie, who's sort of become this kind of the son to Ted. He's replacing the evil father, trying to be a good father. Now they're sort of backtracking a bit, encouraging Jamie, much as his father had demanded. They're saying, you should do this. And then there's Ted's own son looking at Jamie. So it seems this very intertwined complex of emotional triggers around fathers and sons and being selfish and being not good and the bad father and the good father. There's much here. I don't know fully what it means yet, but it obviously can't be an accident that these are the auditory callbacks they placed under the sound here. Okay. This causes Ted to run off the field and we won't see him until the end of the episode, but for now, with confusion reigning amongst the remaining coaching staff, a goal is scored by Tottenham, tying the game. Nate spits forcefully, as we saw him do in the previous episode when he was gathering his courage at A Taste of Athens, and fully takes charge as Coach Beard and Roy kind of step back. This is yet another sort of buried storyline that we didn't know was going to suddenly kick in here into gear as we see a new, at least sometimes confident, Nate burst forth. Park the bus, he orders. They do so, they score once again, and Richmond wins. Now, if you remember in the first, especially the first season, there was almost always a press conference in every episode of Ted Lasso. But now we see a singular Nate being interviewed against the backdrop. He seems like a mix of the old Nate and the new, and he accidentally provides himself a moniker that will stick with him. He says that he's not some sort of wonder kid, which is a malapropism for Wunderkind, but pretty much means the same thing. 
we subsequently see him scrolling through something that looks a lot like Twitter, noting all his mentions, often with this Wonderkid hashtag. Roy congratulates him on his coaching success, and Nate smiles. But then as Roy departs, the look on Nate's face really, it's a complex emotional stew. The smile gives way to something that looks like displeasure, maybe even contempt. Once again, as we saw in the previous episode, where at the very end, Nick Muhammad, who plays Nate, really registered this sort of deflation in his body. Here, I think his face is just really painting a picture that he's not simply happy with this new success. There's something else going on there. I would imagine that this is a very complicated moment for the coaching staff of Richmond here. What are their relative roles versus each other? Who gets to make these kinds of decisions? And then, of course, all of this in-group, out-group hierarchy stuff that we talked about in the previous episode, it's all still very live for Nate. You know, does he rank up to Roy Kent's level? What does Roy Kent think of him? What does he think of Roy Kent? In the closing moments, we see Rebecca looking for Ted spotting his drop jacket, surmising that he might be suffering from what she had seen from him in the previous season. And you'll remember that she and Ted were big emotional supports for each other that season. She calls him, reaches out to him on the phone, and then returns home to find that, in fact, her mother has gone back to her father once again. She calls Hunky Luca and ignores her banter admirer, who, in a dramatic reveal, we found out is Sam. Yeah, I... Don't think I saw that coming. I don't know. Did you? No, they tried to fool us. Speaking of feints in this direction, they tried to like visually su suggest it might be Ted in the previous episode. That proves to be wrong. Yeah, it's not a good sign for banter. It seems like maybe there aren't enough people on this platform. if <laughs> <laughs> it's the two of them. And then in the episode's final scene, we witness Dr. Sharon discovering Ted in her darkened office. I want to make an appointment, he says. All right. So that's our summary. As noted, I did not go into as much detail at this time because I think that the, as I said, all, pretty much six storylines are so intertwined, surprising, popping up out of nowhere in some cases, disappearing and then reappearing in the case of the Rebecca on banter storyline. But I think it's obviously such a key moment for Rebecca for sure, but for Nate and for Ted, and it's really just waited. We don't know what's going to happen next. All right. So, Kathy, I think you spotted some themes that you think apply to lessons in leadership and learning, adult learning. Oh, you know I did. So I feel like in this episode, it's almost like it's posing a couple interesting questions that are crucial questions for leaders, but, you know, I guess for everyone. So the first question is, what do you do? When you notice that somebody is stuck in a pattern, it's not so much that it's setting up the patterns, though clearly there are people with patterns in this episode. But I think it's also posing the question of what do the people around that pattern, witnessing that pattern, what should they do? When you see somebody repeating an unhealthy pattern of behavior, it's likely that that pattern is certainly more clear to you than it is to them. So you're faced with a question. Do you ignore it or do you intervene? And I will say that if you decide to intervene, what it really means is you think this person can change. But bringing this pattern to them and discussing it with them involves telling them that you see it and implicitly or explicitly saying that they should break it. And so there's some vulnerability involved in doing that. And it's a big question that anybody would face to say, should I take the plunge or not? That's very interesting. Can you give us some examples of what you're talking about? 
Yes, certainly. There are three instances where people are stuck in patterns. I think the first example is clearly Rebecca's mom. Rebecca's mom is stuck in a pattern of announcing that she's leaving her marriage only to be wooed back in. And at this point, when we encounter this pattern in this episode, Rebecca believes that she can't change. So there's really no point in intervening with a truthful perspective, or at least there's really no point for Rebecca to intervene with her perspective. And it sounds like Rebecca learned this the hard way. Being honest in the past about how she felt about her parents' marriage and how she felt about her mother actually hurt the relationship when her mom went back to the marriage after saying there was going to be a separation. So at this point, Rebecca has given up. She just lets the pattern repeat. This is the best choice for her right now for maintaining a healthy relationship with her mom. Yeah, and as we noted, this pattern seems to be reflected in the Coach Beard and Jane dynamic as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That is my second example. So Coach Beard and Jane, his girlfriend, are stuck in a pattern of breaking up, getting back together, and then more relationship drama that seems to lead to the next breakup. Which is just like what Becca's mom and her husband seem to have as well. It's similar, but it seems to be on a shorter cycle time and perhaps a little more volatile. So the Diamond Dogs convene and they have a discussion. And the substance of that debate is essentially the answer to this question, right? Should we intervene or not? Is it wise for us to express the reservations that we have about this relationship to Coach Beard? And they may actually believe that Coach Beard could change your benefit. But the end point of that discussion is they decide it's not worth it because calling it out to Beard could damage the relationship. They land in pretty much the same place that Rebecca has in confronting the pattern that her mom is stuck in, which is that they fear that they will bear some resentment when whatever transpires transpires and it isn't worth it. Now, what is really interesting about this discussion is that there's consensus around this in the Diamond Dogs with one exception, which, as you noted, is Higgins. Higgins can't leave it alone. It feels like a real responsibility to him. And he does act in this episode. He pulls Coach Beard aside, shares with him what his perspective is. And it's really interesting, despite what the Diamond Dogs predicted, you know, which may come to pass, who knows. But right here in the moment, it's clear that Coach Beard appreciates the gesture. He appreciates the intention and gets a hug out of the whole thing. We will never speak of this again, though, he says. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's interesting that Higgins does this. What do you think about the way he frames it? Oh, yeah. So Higgins, he's not party to the pattern, but he's outside the pattern. He decides to surface his understanding of what he thinks the pattern is. And he engages in that difficult conversation with Beard to share his point of view, like to share his story about what he thinks is going on. He also poses a question to Beard. Oh, the quote, you're a great man. Does Jane make you greater? Okay. So I think you said there was a third. Yes. So the third is the ongoing saga of Roy and Jamie. Roy and Jamie are stuck in a pattern of hostility toward each other. And this pattern is preventing them from working together effectively. This happens in the workplace a lot. I think almost everybody who works in an organization can think of two people who are locked in some kind of pattern where the hostility that they're feeling toward each other is manifesting in ways that is stopping them from working together well. So what happens in this case is a little bit different. There's some advice giving. Keely gives advice to Jamie to essentially play nice 
right? And be very flattering <laughs> to Roy with the hope that this might just lubricate this relationship a little bit. Ted, however, thinks they need to work it out directly. And this example plays out differently than the other two. It's interesting because I do wonder if our patterns of working with other people are influenced by our personal patterns, right? What we learned in our family life, children, what we learned in our relationships probably does affect the way we deal in these other relationships. You know, the relationship between Roy and Jamie is deep, as we've seen, and they've had these serious discussions about the relationship between them. There is a little bit, you know, the father and son thing going on there with them, Roy being older and being much like Jamie when he was younger. It's an intense relationship, and it's made even more intense by the fact that they're part of a love triangle of sorts, which is Roy is now with Keely, who is Jamie's previous longtime girlfriend. Yes to all that, right? I think we bring the sum total of all our relationship patterns with us to the workplace and in ways that we may be aware of, but are probably mostly unaware of. We probably enact some of those dynamics in the relationships that we have with people at work. So I would say, yes, that's very clearly what's going on here. All right. So this example plays out in an interesting way. Jamie himself decides to surface the issue. He decides to address the pattern that they're stuck with, And he asks a really fundamental question, which is, why won't you coach me? I think it is truly a curious question. Like, I don't think he really understands what is preventing Roy from doing his job, which is to coach all the players. And this gets through to Roy. I think this is a really helpful way to frame it. He doesn't say, why don't you like me or why are you treating me this way? He says, why won't you coach me? And I think this is a pretty good example of how addressing one of these patterns of hostility actually comes to a pretty good place because if one person makes a gesture and that gesture seems genuine, and it's framed in terms of something that feels mutually beneficial and important to both parties, it can help to break the pattern. And I think that's what happens here with Roy and Jamie. And so in the end, the effort that Jamie puts in here is worth it because it really does end up unlocking better performance for Jamie and ultimately a victory for the team. You know, the other thing that I think is important here about Roy and Jamie is that basically Roy is saying there's this part of you, Jamie, that is not very effective generally, but can be effective in a key moment in a game. And I think this is something that is important. I think there are things that we encourage at work sometimes that maybe we don't want to encourage in the parts of our lives all the time, like being aggressive occasionally and really pushing things along. I can say as somebody who I remember one of my first evaluations at a job where my boss saying, some people say that you're a little aggressive, but I tell them that without that, we wouldn't be getting things done the way they're getting done. So I, I don't want you to tune that down. I want you to keep going. I just want you to know that that's the perception. I really like that example because I think it relates to Ted's role in this example, right? Part of the reason that Roy doesn't want to coach Jamie isn't only just he doesn't like him, but it's that what he would tell Jamie to do as a coach is very different from what Ted would tell him to do as a coach. By surfacing this issue, Jamie is asking Roy to say what he ends up saying, which is, I don't agree with the way that Ted is coaching you, that you need to be a little bit of a jerk. You need to be that guy, that unlikable guy in order for this team to get results. And it turns out he's right. You said that this episode is posing questions. 
What's the other question that this episode is posing? I think the other question is, what do you do when the stress starts to get to you? And this in the sense of, do you know personally what your own stress responses are? We all face stressful situations at home and at work and at work in particular. It's a place where you can see a range of people display a range of different stress responses. Sometimes things go wrong. You have a little bit of disaster at work and people are going to react to that in surprisingly different ways. So the example that we get of that here in this episode of Ted Lasso is the game with Tottenham is nearly done and the team needs one more goal. And the Richmond coaches get very stressed. And they show three different stress responses that psychologists and coaches talk about. These are seen as basic instinctive reflexes. These are not things you make choices to intentionally do. The first stress response we see from Ted, we'll call it flight. This is the response where the predator is about to jump out of the tree and you run. Ted walks right off the pitch. He just can't be there. He needs to go somewhere else. So that is a stress response that is often referred to as flight. Okay, Beard and Roy, both of them show a second stress response, which is often referred to as freeze. The predator is starting to saunter out of the grass on the savanna, and you just turn into a statue. They stand there, both of them, with panicked expressions on their faces, but they can't seem to take action. The third stress response, this is what Nate does. You would call Nate's stress response fight. The predator jumps out from behind a rock and you attack. And so Nate takes over the situation and he has a calm efficiency to him that's pretty surprising given that he's been characterized throughout the series as a person beset by worry and doubt. But he just takes over and it seems like he knows what to do and he does it well. We're not saying that any one of these is the correct response. What's helpful here is to understand that people might have different responses than you in the moment, right? Oh, yeah, that is really helpful. So the question is just how well do you know yourself? Do you know what your instinctual response to stress may be? Because in that moment, if you're aware of what you may do, it just gives you a little bit of a chance to say to yourself, is this how I really want to react? If you know what your reflex is, you're more likely to notice it in the moment and potentially, if you want to, choose to do something different. And what do we make of Ted's flight response? So obviously the show makes the most out of Ted's flight response. This is the most extreme of all the reactions. And it leads to a big advance in the plot. I would say that this flight reaction that Ted experiences leads Ted to address his own pattern. Ted is stuck in a pattern. And his pattern is he denies that he's stressed or feeling any other kind of negative emotion. He covers it all over with happy talk, while the stress manifests itself in the occasional panic attack and perhaps a little too much drinking. Definitely too much drinking, yes. Yeah, I think we're all hoping at this point that good things will happen for Ted. Now that he's recognized that he is stuck in a pattern of denying his own stress and that he appears to have recognized the need to get a little bit of help. So that's season two, episode six of Ted Lasso, The Signal. Up next is season two, episode seven, Headspace. <laughs>